Jeff Greenfield is a five-time Emmy-winning network correspondent. He's been the senior political correspondent for CBS. He's a senior analyst uh, in the past for CNN. He was a political and media analyst for ABC News and uh, is currently a contributing correspondent for PBS's News Hour Weekend. He also currently writes columns for both Politico and The Daily Beast, both of which I highly recommend. He's written or co-authored 14 books, including a best-selling novel called The People's Choice and several alternative histories of American politics, which were almost like counterfactual examples that teach us a great deal about American political life. Then Everything Changed, 43, When Gore Beat Bush and If Kennedy Lived. The title of his extraordinarily timely seminar today is what leads to a constitutional crisis? Please welcome Jeff Greenfield. Uh, just in case we get wrong about the weather, there are cots uh, up in the <laughs> lobby, and we may we'll find out. Um, to show you that that uh, timeliness is not just a rhetorical notion of Leonard's. Just a couple of hours ago, uh, Senator Jeff Flake. Um, who has been both critical of Donald Trump and is not running for re-election, the two things are not unrelated, um, said the following, tweeted the following, we are begging the president not to fire the special counsel. Don't create a constitutional crisis. Congress cannot preempt such a firing. Our only constitutional remedy is through impeachment. No one wants that. Many people have tweeted back, what do you mean no one wants that? Um, but... It tells you where we are. But my intention tonight is to take this conversation as much as I can out of the daily or hourly frenzy that is occupying cable news and <coughs> social media. Because I think it's important to, to, to understand that, that where we are now did not start with the election of Donald Trump. Uh, and it's not going to end when he no longer is a president, whenever that might be. And I think it's important to take that step back to see that what is, what is, in my view, afflicting our process goes back quite a ways. In fact, in some ways, it goes back beyond even, even the 80s. Um, so that's what I intend to do. And there'll be plenty of time during the conversation to bring it right back to the hair on fire stuff, some probably between the time we start and tonight, something incredible will have happened. And, you know, we'll try to find out. So to begin with, it would be useful, I think, to figure out what are we talking about when we talk about a constitutional process uh, that can get into a crisis. And basically, you'll forgive this, uh, um, surgery has now made it possible for me to see you, but not the paper. So, <laughs> so what we mean essentially is, is a, a system of rules and structures by which p power is granted, limited, contained, and, and where there's a constantly countervailing series of other powers that, that in the words of uh, lawyers, create a system of checks and balances. And by the way, it doesn't have to be written. Great Britain talks about its constitution. There is no written constitution in Great Britain. It's a set of norms that everyone understands. And even in our system, with its elaborate machinery, you know, Congress passes a law, if the president doesn't like it, he vetoes it, but if it's popular enough and two-thirds say, it passes, it passes, but if the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional, they knock it down. But if enough people feel they're wrong, there's a constitutional amendment. And there's this constant pull and tug. But underneath that, 
And what I think is, is so critical to, to where we are now is there is a kind of, or has been, an understanding of how this process um, comes about. For instance, that losers in this system recognize the legitimacy of the process by which the winners became winners. And sometimes that's political. Um, we have had three times in the last half century or so when the sitting vice president of the United States has presided over a joint session of Congress that counts the electoral votes and declares that he has lost the presidency. It happened to Richard Nixon, it happened to Hubert Humphrey, it happened to Al Gore. And in each of those cases, the, the, the loser had grounds to say this was, a, this was not fair. There are people who still tell you that John Kennedy won because votes were stolen in Chicago and in Texas. There are still people who believe that Richard Nixon won because he treasonously undermined a peace agreement uh, between Lyndon Johnson and the South Vietnamese. And Lord knows there are plenty of people uh, who might have been sympathetic if Al Gore had stood up in the middle and said, wait a second, I won the vote. And the Supreme Court rigged it. None of that happened. And it's not just happens in elections. In a constitutional system, even the most powerful of people yield. 1937, Franklin Roosevelt, on the heels of a landslide re-election, wants to do something about the Supreme Court, which constantly is knocking down the New Deal. They're saying everything you do is unconstitutional. So he has this really neat idea. He's going to say, for every justice over the age of 70, I want to appoint another one, up to, I think, 15, which meant he would have controlled the court. His vice president objected. The overwhelmingly Democratic Congress said, this is, this is no, this is your pack in the court. And he, he went down to humiliating defeat at the peak of his power. 1951, Korean War, the steelworkers go on strike. President Truman says, hey, this is a matter of national security. I want to seize the steel mills and basically draft these workers into the army. Supreme Court says, you can't do that. Um, Richard Nixon doesn't want to turn over the tapes. The Supreme Court, three of whose members he appointed, say you have to. He turns over the tape, which he knows is going to doom him. Uh, the same Supreme Court, or eight you know, years later, so several years later, says to Bill Clinton, we don't care that you're the president. You have to sit for a deposition in the Paula Jones case. And he does. And that's the key. None of these, you know, it's a famous line from the, the Andrew Jackson days when Chief Justice Marshall issued an opinion forcing him to do something. And Jackson said, well, he's made his decision. Now let him enforce it. But that's not the way the system works. At least not the way it, it it hasn't ever worked. The losers say, yes, the, the system is legitimate. Um, so then the question is, okay, so what then are the circumstances under which a constitutional crisis can be on the boil? The first one is, I think, there has to be within the populace of a country a widespread sense of anxiety, usually in part or substantially economic, but also cultural, a sense of dislocation, a sense that our place is being undermined, that the world is changing and I, and I don't like the way it's changing. So the reason I say this goes back is by some measurements, the, the average American worker has not really had a raise since the mid-1970s. We had a period from the end of World War II to 1973 when there was a constant increase in, in uh, uh, after taxes, disposable income, um, and then starting with the oil and first oil embargo and the rise of European and Japanese economic clout, that period has ended. As one economist said, we have no longer been picking the low-hanging fruit. Now, there are arguments about this. 
because economists, you know, don't always or often agree. Other people say, well, that's not right, but certainly it's true that since the year 2000, the, average, the net worth of the average American has declined. We've never fully recovered. Uh, and you understand that when we talk about the average worker, we're talking about, and I, I, I don't want to get wonky, but we're talking about the median, not the mean. Meaning that if you put nine homeless people in a room with Bill Gates, their average wealth is $6 billion. Median means who, the person in the middle. And it's been a very rough go um, economically. One, one anecdotal piece of evidence of this is that a couple of years ago, the Federal Reserve Board did a survey, asked people, if you had to come up with $400 in an emergency, $400, could you do it? 47% said no. They'd have to borrow or sell something. 400 bucks. Similar surveys by a group called Bankrate. If you had to come up with $1,000 to pay for an emergency room visit, could you do it? Majority of Americans said no. And most Americans say that if they lost a month of income, they didn't have enough savings to cover that. Now that's economic anxiety. And that's why the numbers of 4.1% unemployment and the economy's booming, the people left behind, the people on the other end of globalism and the post-industrial economy have been clobbered. And you add to that a whole series of cultural dislocations, some of which are um, to be deplored in the words of the former Secretary of State, and some of which are understandable. Um, wait a minute. You're, t you're telling me that uh, a, a, in my kid's high school, a guy can go into the ladies' bathroom? Uh, I call a, a helpline and I'm asked if I want English or Spanish. And if I get somebody in tech support, he's probably in Mumbai. Um, and, 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 and I'm watching the TV and I can't believe what I'm seeing and hearing. I can't let my kid watch the TV. And who are all these strange people with odd names who are showing up as anchors on the evening news? And some of that's, as I said, to be resisted. But you're getting a strong se sense of, of cultural dislocation combined with the feeling, of justified or not, that this, the traditional older way of life is not simply being su supplanted, but kind of sneered at. That, you know, this is, these, are, these are losers. Um, but add to that the fact that the essentials of middle-class life, you know, what are they? Home, college for kids, health care, and retirement security is not a way of life for an awful lot of people. Now, the second thing that I would put on the table is that along with this, and possibly in part because of it, it becomes a loss of trust in major institutions. Remember, one of the premises of a constitutional system is you can trust the process. And this is where we go way back. Um, for the better part of a half, more than half a century, there has been a steady, almost unbroken erosion of trust in almost every American institution. It started with the government. 1964, um, three quarters of Americans told the Washington Post that they trust the government to do what was right all or most of the time. A decade later, after a, a war gone bad and Watergate, the number's down to about 25 or 30%. It has never hit a majority since. Okay, that's the government. But, you know, Americans kind of, we, we're a country that was born in revolt. Okay, we never really liked the government. But big business, labor, the church, um, the banks, and God knows the media, all have had this steady erosion of trust. 
which, if you think about it, sets the template for the kind of campaign that a populist insurgent who is appealing to grievances can work with. You can't run that kind of campaign if people are generally feeling, you know, things, I trust these guys. But one of the things that made the Trump uh, campaign work was that when he, people said, well, you don't know anything. You know, you've never served in government. You, you've never held a public job. You, 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 you really don't know much about this. To which the answer was both explicit and implicit. Oh, yeah? How have the experts done? You think, you think all these foreign policy guys that the Bushes you know, and the Clintons and the Obamas really like them? They really did a great job in, uh, in Iraq, didn't they? They really did a great job in Syria. Um, and that's part of what that appeal was. I'm leaping ahead a bit, but one of the things that, that happened that put this president where he was is everything that a lot of us thought was a bug turned out to be a feature. That is, the very thing that most people would say, well, that's a, that's a disqualifying quality. People say, no, that's why I like him. He's vulgar and rude and sometimes even obscene. Yeah, it's about time somebody talked straight language like I do. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's not immersed in white papers. Well, look, you know, the best and the brightest. That goes all the way back to Vietnam. So the, the more you have a loss of trust in institutions, the more you can then have a leader who appeals to a group that feels that the process as it exists is rigged. I don't know how, if, how many of you uh, remember or saw the, the last two-minute commercial that, that Trump put on the air. But half of it could have been delivered by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. You know, we've been, you've been basically in slightly more polite language, you've been screwed. It also talked about Hillary Clinton conspiring with international banks, which some of you who know your history know that that has a rather unsavory connotation, you know, like the Rothschilds. But that's the appeal. You have been, we've been played for suckers, you've been undermined. And so when you then look at what's going on today with an attempt to argue that the FBI and the CIA are, are as uh, Donald Trump's new lawyer said, that they have conspired to create a fake series of uh, charges and are framing the president. You don't get to make that point unless there's an underlying feeling among at least some people that the whole system um, is rigged. Now, the, the, what follows from this is that I think it's if you are looking to create a constitutional crisis, one of the things that helps is if you begin to regard the opposition as your enemy. Not your opponent, not your adversary, but your enemy. And I, I don't think we've spent, we, I mean collectively, not you people, I've spent nearly enough time understanding how critical this is. Um, in 1996, when Bob Dole, Republican nominee for president, uh, and a creature of Washington, a man who'd spent his life in, in the House and Senate, was giving his acceptance speech, he made a reference He's, to President Clinton that he was running against, and he said, and, 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 and when my opponent, and then he kind of stopped and he said, and he's my opponent, not my enemy. And already, you know, the, that was not the greatest applause line at the convention, because people were already starting to think of the other guy as the enemy. Hillary Clinton, uh, in when she ran, talked about her, her enemy or the, you know, Republicans running against her. That's a very, if you, if you pay attention to words, there's a huge difference. Because if someone is your enemy as opposed to your opponent, then all kinds of means are justified to beat them, right? You, you know, if you're playing your opponent in tennis, you're not allowed to, you know, throw your racket at them. 
He's your opponent. But if it's somebody's your enemy, that's a very different thing. And so what, you, what, what we have seen, I think, over the years um, is a steady hardening of the lines. Now, look, I'm, I honestly do not think this is a partisan point. This largely is because the Republican Party, when Newt Gingrich was its effective leader, took a whole different approach to politics. He and uh, a political consultant named Frank Luntz drafted a memo to all Republican candidates. What words are you, should you use to describe your opponent? You can look this up, as Ring Lardner said. And the words were corrupt, pathetic, betrayal, you know, not wrong, much worse. Um, and I just noticed a couple of days ago, a, a, a close associate of Hillary Clinton, I may be mispronouncing his name, Philip Rains, put out a memo saying, we've got to be different. Everybody's nasty as they. I don't agree, he said, with Michelle Obama. When they go low, we go high. No, when they go low, we go just as low. Because you, you can't bring a knife to a gunfight. He didn't say that, but that's the point. And so what this means is that, um, for instance, to go back to Mr. Gingrich, um, a few years ago when he was, and many other conservatives were um, incensed at the liberal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is, governs here, and they are. They're a very liberal court. And one of the judges who I know a little bit is, you know, I mean, he's really liberal. Um, what Gingrich proposed to do was that they cut off all funding for the court so that they couldn't afford law clerks or heat or light or law books. Um, in other words, what happens is, in politics, begin to think tribally. You begin to think my tribe, your tribe. And so what begins to happen is um, I'm defending my tribe's leader no matter what. Now, now, here is where if you're a Democrat, you might not like what I'm about to say. This didn't start with Trump. Um, Ted Kennedy was revered by the left. Right? There's a movie coming out next month called Chappaquiddick. And makes the point that I have, you know, I worked for his brother. But I think it's quite clear, Ted Kennedy left a woman to die. I don't know any way to put it. He left a woman to die. And he was reelected, I think, six more times, and he was the lion of the Senate. When Bill Clinton got himself into trouble, um, I, I think the, the, the feminist liberals who had, you know, the personal is political. Apparently not if the person doing what he's doing is your guy. Gloria Steinem basically wrote a, a, an essay, that, an op-ed that basically said of him, well, you know, maybe he did, I'm being very polite, hit on Paula Jones, but when she said no, he didn't force himself on her. So that became known as the one free grope rule. <laughs> um, in other words, he was pro-choice. He pointed a lot of women into high positions of power. They liked his politics. And so the behavior that he engaged in, which I think had it been a Republican would have been, you know, cause for outrage, well, you know, give him a pass. And you may remember in 2016 when all of the charges against Donald Trump came out, what did he do? He brought the three women who had accused Clinton of predatory behavior to the last debate. And I think that had a power, I think that had some impact in making it very hard for Hillary Clinton to make this case. So the notion that tribes exist uh, now in politics and, and, and defend 
their people. This is not a, a one-sided uh, thing. I mean, do I think the Republican Party right now, and particularly the voices at Fox News, have taken this to a whole new level? Yeah, I do. But they can't, it can't be seen in isolation. Um, and one way to think about this is try to, Im try to imagine Watergate. I'm, you know, for the students here, I'm a, I have to assume that uh, political science is still taught, you know. <laughs> I am not about to engage in a get off my lawn thing. I really am not. But if you think about Watergate, and I see you know, CNN, which is now, in my view, gone completely nuts on this. It's eight hours a day of Robert Mueller and panels. You know, it looks like a subway uh, station at 5 p.m. sometimes on CNN. But, and they have John Dean on, and they have Carl Bernstein on. Fine. Look. Watergate happened at a time when the Democrats had big majorities in the House and Senate. They ran the investigations. Half the Republicans in the Senate were moderates and liberals. Yes, they existed back then. Jacob Javits, Clifford Case, you know, go on. And there was no countermedia. There was no Fox News, there was no Hannity, there was no Rush Limbaugh, there was no Breitbart pushing back saying, it's a fake. Archibald Cox, the special counsel that Nixon fired, he's a Kennedy liberal. You know what? He was a Kennedy liberal. He was a bow tie wearing elitist from Harvard Law School who'd worked for the Kennedys. But, that, but he was also a very honorable guy. So if you try to picture Watergate now, in a, in a or Watergate in a situation where the entire Republican Party is, is tribally committed, except for the lame ducks. One thing you can get is if the guy's not running for re-election, They'll be tough on, on Trump. Where the leaders of the, of the Republican Party know that 90% of Republicans like Donald Trump. To take him on is to risk political problem. And millions of people are hearing every day that, you know, uh, Joe DeGeneva, the new lawyer for Donald Trump, as I said, said the FBI and CIA are framing Donald Trump. I mean, really? I mean, I remember when the FBI and the, the people who most disliked the FBI and the CIA, this is how old I am, were people on the far left who thought, yeah, they're the guys who killed Kennedy because he wanted to, you know, bring peace. So why, what then does this mean in terms of a potential constitutional crisis? Well, um, a political scientist named Keith Whittington has tried to figure out what that would mean. What, what do we mean in, in this context? And he notes that there are a couple of different kinds of constitutional crises. One would be operational, when we don't know how to use the rules. And the best example of that is Bush versus Gore in 2000. Um, if the Supreme Court had not stopped the recount, what we would have had is a situation potentially where the Florida legislature would have picked its own electors, all of whom would have been for Bush because they were Republican. The state attorney general who was a Democrat taking the state Supreme Court decision would have said, no, that, that, that doesn't work. I'm, I'm, we're going to hold them in contempt. This fight would have gone on at federal and state levels, possibly right through the January 3rd, when the electoral votes are supposed to be counted, and possibly through January 20th, when the new president was supposed to come in. Because, because this machinery had gone bluey, and nobody quite knew how this could possibly be handled. The other kind is what they call a crisis of fidelity, and that's what we're really talking about now. 
where the leaders won't apply the rules. For instance, uh, if Trump were to fire Trump were to fire Sessions, fire Rosenstein, put in a new Attorney General, close down the, um, the the investigation, and Congress just went to use Paul Ryan's favorite word, that that's troubling. <laughs> he's, he's that's that's he's troubling, um, and and. The better way to think of it maybe is not so much as he puts it, not constitutional crisis, but constitutional rot. The, that the faith in the key institutions and what the Constitution commands are so eroded by distrust that while the structures remain in place, the decision makers say, yeah, it's okay, it's all right. And at that point, you have a situation where the president and any future president, basically, as long as that president has the support of the, of the you know, Congress, backed by his own party strongly enough, can basically do as he chooses. We've seen this in a lot of other countries um, in a much more dramatic way, what's called illiberal democracy. Somebody gets elected, legitimately elected, and then begins to chop away at the institutions that limit power. So in Venezuela, the Supreme Court, packed by the president, tells the Congress, you can't impeach the president. Or in Russia, Putin wins because the only credible candidate is not allowed to run. Or in Poland, a law is passed that says uh, it is now a crime to say that the Poles were complicit in the Holocaust. Uh, all accompanied by a kind of grievance-based popularity there against us. They are the cosmopolitans the globalists, uh, the internationalists that, who are not loyal to the blood and soil of our country. Now that's, look, Steve Bannon, the former senior strategist, sort of came as close as we've seen to somebody like that here. But he's not there. But I do think that, the, that the, in this case, the strategy of, of a constant daily assault on all the institutions that might check the president's power um, has to be looked at as a potential underpinning of a constitutional crisis. Because basically, just as what happened in the election, Donald Trump said, if I lose, it's the only way I can lose is if it's rigged. And basically now what I think um, his supporters are saying, in so many words, are whatever, whatever Robert Mueller comes up with, don't believe it. Because he's, he's corrupt, He's in the service of the deep state. Um, he's been compromised by the fact that a lot of the people on his team gave money to Democrats. Uh, it doesn't matter that, that you know, Mueller's a Republican and most career lawyers in this field kind of rise above their policy. No, 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 they don't. They don't. They're all in it. They're all out to get me. And so whatever you hear, don't believe it. And again, if you go back to Watergate, and if a substantial number of the, of the public and a majority of the people in Congress felt tribal loyalty to Richard Nixon, uh, and he said, oh, I'm not, you know, no, of course I'm not going to turn over the tapes. That's a violation of a separation of powers. I'm, I'm burning them on the White House lawn, which some of his advisors had suggested. And the Congress said, oh, well, okay, yeah, we're with you. That's where, that's where I think we could possibly be 
and it's why I spend so much time trying to suggest that there is a long tail to this story. This began many years ago, and whatever happens with this president, the, um, the erosion of trust is a big deal. One of the things that, that we have discovered, one in six Americans now think living under military rule might be a good idea. And among millennials, around 40% think living in a democracy is not very important. It's an enormous leap from, from the younger generation of, of a generation ago. Not important. Maybe, I, you know, I, 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 am, I don't know what's being taught in civics in high schools, but, you know, something's gone bluey. Um, and before I forget, there's one other thing about this tribalism uh, point regarding your opponents as enemies. Um, a couple of decades ago, the Pew Research people asked a kind of whimsical question. They said, How would, would you be upset if one of your kids married somebody from the other political party? And back then, it was 5% of Democrats said, yeah, I'd be upset, and about 5% of Republicans said, I'd be upset. Last time they asked that question, 40% of Republicans and a third of the Democrats said, I'd really be upset if one of my kids married somebody from a different, not a different religious faith, not a different ethnic background, but a different political party. And great numbers of people, both Republicans, Democrats, regard the other party not as wrong, but as malevolent as a threat. And so I'll wrap this up by saying, if you ask what is to be done about this, I don't have a lot of answers. Uh, I mean, I have some answers, but, but there are, you know. It is interesting to me that among, among the conservatives who never warmed to Trump, they're, they're in split. Among the, among the never Trumpers, about half of them say, well, you know, he's given us a, a conservative federal bench. He's given us the kind of tax bill we like. Uh, he's cutting back on crazy regulations. Uh, he's reversed the kind of politically correct stuff about, uh, about gays and about uh, sexual assault on campus and about all of that. Half of them said, okay, I can take his behavior because he's delivered. And the other half say, I'm sorry, this guy's a, an existential threat. But among the people who've not warmed to Trump, um, many, I can't say many, that's what Trump says, many people think. There is a movement to say this November, we've got to get a Democratic House. We've got to get some institution that can hold this president to account. And then we can, we can find a better Republican, you know, we'll, we'll go right back to it, but not this time. I, it was interesting to me that uh, just today, uh, Ralph Peters, a retired military officer who's a frequent Fox News voice, very conservative, really hostile to Obama. Thought he was selling, you know, basically sell, you know, screwing up our national interest. He announced he's leaving Fox because he can't take it, because he thinks that they are, they are now serving uh, you know, a, a presidency that is essentially a, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vladimir Putin. And remember, I'm talking about a, a conservative, tough as nails, right-wing general. Um, so I do think that, that, that given where we are now, whether, and by the way, it, it could also happen that if the Republicans who are controlling Congress find that at some point Trump has gone a bridge too far and assert their institutional role, not their party role, to push back and say, no, no, you can't do this, then it doesn't have to be a Democratic Congress. It has to be some, some kind of countervailing force um, to prevent a kind of constitutional rot. 
as far as the press goes, and now I'm going to stop, we got no choice. We, all, we have to keep doing what we're doing. Um, I, th I have a problem with how CNN is covering this because I think the 19 hours a day of the Mueller story is, is not covering the consequential policy stuff. You know, I, I think the fact that the president is not endorsing this rail tunnel between New York and New Jersey because he doesn't like Chuck Schumer has the potential to threaten the economy of the entire Northeast. But that's not sexy. That's not White House intrigue. But stories like that, stories like the fact that we're cutting back on, um, I think it's the Center for, Center for Disease Control that has, hot, that has offices all over the world to try to spot potential plagues. That, that funding is being cut drastically. You know, and we're not getting that story. Because the real, to me, that's the story and those are the stories that the press ought to be doing. And if you're a 24-hour cable news operation, maybe you could take some time to do that. Not to mention the um, Cambridge Analytica story, which I'm going to—it's too complicated for a liberal arts major like me to explain. Um, there's more I want to say about the news, but I'm going to do that in the conversation. At which point, let me stop and let's have a conversation. Great. Thank you. Let's all join me in thanking uh, Jeff. You mentioned uh, the networks and the news and the media, so maybe you could explain to me the false equivalency that happens on every network news show. Yes, uh, yes, Trump said X, it was defamatory, but then, you know, the, the Democrats said X. And it never seems to stand out that there can be a truthful remark and there can be an incorrect mm -hmm. remark. I just disagree with you. I think there is. I think CNN and MSNBC in primetime. There is no false equivalency. They are two places hammering, you know, hammering Trump relentlessly. I watched just the other. I don't watch this much anymore, and especially with the baseball season starting. But it's. I don't. I just don't agree. When Don Lemon comes on, or Anderson Cooper comes on, which just watch it last night. There's not a single. There may be one voice out of five who are saying okay about Trump. And by the way, I think it is right that when this president, who absolutely dissembles, misleads, or outright lies more than we've ever had, that's what the press has to do. Katie Turr, who was my guest in New York at a, at a chat Sunday night, made this point. When you decide a president or anybody is lying, you gotta, that's what you've got to do, and it's been a real battle because the press isn't used to this. The New York Times used the word lie in a headline about Trump and it was like, it was like uh, they ran a full frontal nude on the front page because it's just, so I think that's not what's happening. Um, what I do think is that whatever the imbalance on CNN and MSNBC, what goes on on Fox is a, is a different dimension. Well, I think on Fox it's propaganda, it's not Well, it's state, it's state media. Yeah. I mean, it's actually become a joke among, among my contemporaries that when something enormous happens, you know Sean Hannity's going to come, come on with Hillary's email, and Tucker Carlson's going to talk about some politically incorrect or politically correct wacko thing happening at a college. Yeah. Uh, and now Shep Smith and um, Chris Wallace and to some extent, and Brett Baer, they are different because they're news guys. Um, anyway, Charlie. So uh, many years ago, a guy named Hiding Carter, who some may remember, uh, said um, that democracy is ruling as if you will not be in charge one day. 
it's kind of a golden rule of democracy. And I think what you've laid out is, was really great in terms of will the Congress and Congress people exercise their responsibilities and you know, recognizing that someday it's gonna be reversed. So when you said, what can we do about it? I think one of the, you know, in identifying the questions or the problem, I think one of the great problems is that Congress people um, value their reelection over everything. In other words, that is the ultimate thing and they will do anything to get reelected. That's great in some respects in that it's democratic. So they're trying to follow the, the uh, will of their constituency. But at some point, and we went into this the first session, uh, first uh, group when um, Jeff uh, Rosen was here, about the importance of uh, representation. And you have to you know, represent the country and what's right for the country. So I guess my question is, what could turn that so that Congress people will not value their own reelection over everything else? And I don't think term limits is the answer. Um, I'm trying to imagine what universe that would exist in. Um, <laughs> And you occasionally have you occasionally have some, you know. Um, I think what happened with, with Jeff Flake was, but see, in, in that case, Jeff Flake knew he was going to lose a primary, and that's that, you know, that that can make you very courageous uh, when you know that you're, you know, being thrown off a cliff. Um, one of the things that, one of the things that has happened that makes this even trickier is that we now have. This, this may change this November, but over the years we have had fewer and fewer competitive districts. We have had more and more districts where people of either party win by landslides. Um, you know, and, and so what's happened is that the fear, and while this is principally true in the Republican Party, it, is, it may well be showing up in the Democrats, is their fear is being primaried. I know I can win a general election, but you know, if I go off the reservation, politically incorrect term, I realize, I'm sorry, uh, I'm going to get clobbered. Uh, tonight in Illinois, a conservative Democrat named uh, Lipinski is fighting for his political life because he's a conservative. I mean, he's really conservative for a Democrat, you know, anti-abortion, pro-gun, he didn't even endorse Obama. Um, and the, here's, what, here's what is possible. All right. I mean, I do alternative history, so I hadn't, you may have given me a hell of an idea here. If, if, if there are Republican primaries now, like there were in 2010 and 2012, where fringe candidates win, and the Democrats wind up somehow taking the Senate because in Mississippi and maybe Tennessee and, and maybe Nevada, uh, the Republicans put up, to use the technical term, whack jobs. Uh, that, more than anything else, will be the wake-up call because that will threaten the Republicans' power. I don't know that that's going to happen. But I also, I must say, I also like the idea of what, uh, what Schwarzenegger did here with the jungle primary. Although, I don't want to filibuster. You know that everybody runs together no matter, and the top two no matter what finish. What's going to happen in a couple of congressional districts, unless the Democrats are careful, is there are so many Democrats running for those seats that they're going to split the vote and there are going to be two Republicans in a district that the Democrats could win. 
But assuming that that doesn't happen, that they somehow, you know, pull themselves off, the only thing that can the only thing that can keep a a political party pull it back from a fringe is when the voters say no. Uh, and we've seen it happen. I mean. It's certainly not the same example because he was an honorable guy, but George McGovern was a candidate that 40 to 50 percent, 40 percent of the Democrats just felt was the wrong guy. And Goldwater was the same thing. Um, and, they, and in both cases, the parties moved toward a different direction. Anyway, I want to get more questions in. Uh, let me see. Well, okay, yes, you. I hate to do this. Yes. I'm going to start making bids. Go ahead. Yes. I was wondering if, and they're part of the reason also, that um, people have no memory. People don't remember that not too long ago uh, they had communism and, of course, uh, fascism, and that Hitler had many things in common with Trump. For example, the more he, I mean, he always believed if you lie long enough and enough, people will believe it. And I just wonder, the generation that remembered that is hardly here, number one. And number two, the young people have no memory and they don't uh, understand history and they do not study history. And they've forgotten something that happened not that long ago. Okay, my first reaction, and, and forgive me for this, is I think the only way that I want to hear Hitler mentioned is when we're talking about Hitler. It's, it's so much over the, I understand what you're saying, but it's so, it leads to so enormous a consequence that it's probably best to just, you know, ru rule that part out. I mean, he's certainly not the only example of a politician who came to power by line. I mean, or certainly by, by pursuing legitimate grievances, right? I meant, you know, he came to power in an election originally. And the grievance about the Versailles Treaty and what happened to the German economy was legitimate. And in, in, uh, uh, in the Balkans, Milosevic came to power by, by um, playing on a 500-year-old grievance, the Battle of Kosovo. He said, we will never let that happen again. And Osama bin Laden said to his followers, we will never let what happened in, the, uh, in southern Spain in 1492, when the Moors were driven out. Never let that happen again. So the plane on grievances, you know, is a theme. In terms of no memory, you know what? I think you're right. But I think this is one of those constant facts about American life. I'll tell you, this is the 30-second diversion. Uh, some years ago, for reasons I can't remember, I was up in the executive offices of the New York Times, and they have framed on the wall great front pages. And for some reason, I was looking at one of them, and the bottom of the front page had a story from 1941 that, talking about the utter historical ignorance of American college seniors. So whatever's been going on with how we teach history, this is 1941. Um, but I, look, I do agree with you. Um, every time I watch Jay Leno's doing his jaywalking, uh, or who does it now? Some, is it Seth Meyers who does it now? You go out and you, you interview people, and they know nothing Nothing. So maybe one of the things, if you want to have far-out notions, now that we don't have to have it discriminated, maybe we should have literacy tests to vote. I mean, we, they used to be used in the South to disenfranchise blacks, and they were terribly unfair. But, you know, I'm beginning to think, <laughs> I, 
I'm beginning to think something like that. I, I want to put one on my Twitter feed based on some of the tweets I get. And I'm sorry, um, you know, you flunk. Uh, you can't, you can't, I'm blocking you now. Okay, well, a couple of questions over here. Oh, we got a mic on this side? We have one on there. Yeah, okay, so let's go to you and then we'll go to you and, and then we'll go to you. Sorry. Um, can can I go ahead and walk, go? Leonard. I have a microphone over here. Oh, go ahead. Is that right? All right. It's like yeah. a symbol of power. Um, I, I'm appreciating your paradigm, um, and and I, I'm a high school educator, so I've been teaching for a long time. And as I think about these issues, I think about the students as you bring these up. Um, the fact that we've lost trust in these institutions, and I guess what's coming up in my head is, I agree with you. Um, which is probably, uh, you know, anyway, I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't get into, you know, how much, how much you should take from me as a high school teacher agreeing with you. But I want to tell you that I'm wondering, should, are the institutions even worth the students uh. trusting anymore? Because as someone that tries to teach them these things and say, you know, and, you know, am I convinced that they are worth Trusting and, and now that they're almost losing even more institutions, right? The, the police and the, and the schools and the government, and it's almost to a point where they believe in Snapchat and Instagram and Netflix because those have never let them down. So it, it, I'm very curious as to. You no, it's know, really it's a terrific point. And by the way, my mother was a junior high school teacher, so I, I'm you know I'm fine with this. But more to more to the point. By the way. I'm not sure how much trust they're going to have in Facebook after the last 48 hours. Notice um, I didn't mention Facebook. <laughs> but um, I wrote, I did a piece for PBS a couple of years ago. I don't know, Leonard, was this sent out, my piece about loss of trust in every institution? I'm not sure what happened to yeah. Leonard. Okay. And, and one of the points I made in the piece was that, you know, there might be good reason for the loss of trust. That is to say, okay, you want, to want, you want to know why the church is less respected than it was? Well, you know, anybody see the movie Spotlight? Uh, you want to know why banks may not be trusted the way they were? Anybody remember what happened, you know, in 2007, 2008? Uh, the New York Times for the last two days has been running front page stories about um, the epidemic of lying that goes on in police testimony. And in terms of the media, you know, um, Think of the behavior of some of our more celebrated ex-anchors. Uh, yeah, because there was a time, one of the things that's worth pointing out is there was a time when institutions were protected from exposure. You know, the behavior of, of, of our major politicians, both personal and financial, were essentially shielded from public view. Um, and I think the hardest thing to do is to have both a clear-eyed view of the flaws and can still say, but you know, these are useful institutions and we need to keep them. Um, You've done an excellent job of, I think, uh, sensitizing us to the long history that's led up to where we are, uh, the, de the demographics, where it's going. Um, my question relates to, to downstream. Are we at a point uh, when we look at the demographics, I think the average uh, listenership of Fox is 65. Um, 
when we look at the rural America versus the urban America, the cities themselves are blue. Houston's blue, Dallas is blue, Birmingham's blue. Mm -hmm. And there's a very clear difference between being urbanized and being rural and mm -hmm. your sensibilities and your age. And um, there's a statistic I ran across on the current delegations in Washington that we have 39 women and men of color in the Republican, of all the Republicans. And we have 130 women and men of color in the Democrats. So you have one party that's encouraging a farm team that's diverse and the other party very committed to not having that. Yet we read all the shifts are going in the other direction. We're becoming urban, you've lost the rural economy, you have women and men of color participating. Are we at a point where we should, in a sense, keep active, but we're going to have to sit this thing out for a oh. culture shift to get a unity, or are we at an inflection point right. where the other, you know, what, what's our time frame for what we hear on this front? You've actually put your finger on, on one of the central issues in the whole political universe. I'm really, I'm, I genuinely appreciate the question, because after 2012, uh, Ron Brownstein writes for The Atlantic, a smart uh, uh, political observer, as I know, because he can read these surveys and talked about th that the Democrats were winning with the coalition of the ascendant versus what he called the Republican coalition of restoration. That is, people who wanted to kind of go back to more traditional. And the point was the population numbers were clear that um, uh, his number was something like every day this number of young Hispanics become 18 and can vote. And the, th the notion was that's where the country's going. And that was, by the way, the key strategic decision of the Clinton campaign was we don't have to go after this other vote. We can just rely on the Obama coalition. Um, I, you know, I won't take you into all the numbers. Part of the problem was that um, the coalition didn't show up quite as much as they were counting on. I mean, I, I was at the Democratic convention and every Clinton person I talked to, there's an old Jackie Mason joke, you will forgive me. He says, if you ask a married couple, are you happy, you get a number. Are you happy? 26 years. That's how the, that's how the Clinton campaign uh, basically approached this campaign. Oh, this many women, this many uh, blacks and Hispanics, this many millennials, and we got enough. And A, they did not count on the massive defection of, of, of the rest of the country. Humongous defections way more than Obama lost. Nor did they calculate the fact that it wouldn't take much, it, just a slightly smaller turnout. Like millennials, because they you know, they'd had eight fairly hard years. Uh, Hispanics did not turn out as much as they thought. So yeah, I, I guess at some point, and there's one other thing I have to say, just in terms of raw politics, and you'll see it this November, the dilemma. Because the founding fathers, and they were all guys, had to give the small states extra power. You know, there's two senators for every state, right? And if you, if you want to win a bet with a nerd, ask them what part of the Constitution is not allowed to be amended. I have stumped a federal judge on this one. The only part of the Constitution you can amend in Article 5 is every state, no state can be deprived of equal representation in the Senate without its consent. And my, the reason I'm saying that is that this year, in states like where the Democratic incumbent senators are running, Indiana, West Virginia, Missouri, North Dakota, Montana, uh, five states that Trump carried by somewhere between 18 and 30 points, that it, the coalition of the ascendant is an ascendant. So whatever the weight's going to be, um, uh, you know, 
I think that's not, I also think that's very unhealthy politically. I, I, you know, I mean, if, if, if some of you are, as I suspect, are offended by how Trump divides and, uh, you know, just basically wreaks contempt on people who aren't for him, I, I just think it's the wrong way to go. I never understood why Hillary Clinton, starting from the moment she left Secretary of State's job, didn't start talking to these other people. And, uh, oh, go ahead. Okay. Well, no, I just had a, a related, again, it's a demographic question real quickly. Um, my own background was in very obscure field, political anthropology, but about 20 years ago, I spent time in the California Republican Party trying to fight the far-right takeover, which began here 20 years ago, so I'm very sensitive to your comment about long tails. And things like, there. this is about the Christian fundamentalists who came in and took over the party based in the Southern strategy with Ailes and Nixon and Dobson and all of those guys, and they were very successful in California, where it's not a natural home for them. But commentary like um, in the California Republican Party platform was move, move the capital of Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem 20 years ago. I had a woman say to me, why should we have women in the assembly? Jesus never had a woman disciple. And so on. This, this was real to these people. And for urbanites, the reality of Christian fundamentalism, you could see this thing coming. You weren't going to convince very many people this was a real threat. How do you see this fundamental, I mean, we have Pompeo, we have Pence who won't go out to lunch with ladies. I mean, there is a true hardcore, the world's only 5,000 years old and we're in a religious battle in the Near East. That is a real force in the Republican Party and in the Southeast. Do you see that dem demographic going away? Do yeah, you see I, it controlling the parties? Yeah. It's a very dangerous to me and I just wonder what your vision of no, the I future understand, was but on here, that. Here's where the long view, I think, helps. Um, in, 19, in the 1920s, the most powerful political in, influence in the state of Indiana and Oregon was the Ku Klux Klan. They ran the politics of those states. At some point, the fever broke. Um, I, think, I think if I've seen the numbers right, the younger evangelicals are way far away from the Jerry Falwell Juniors and the Franklin Grahams. And that is one where I think part of that answer is going to be time. Whether or not, um, I mean, I think among all, all of us, the one number that tells you what you're saying is uh, about four or five years ago, evangelicals were asked, is it important that the leader of the country, uh, the personal morality, how important is that? And 75% is very important. Last time that survey was taken a few months ago, the number was 25%. Why? Because they're getting what they want from a president whose behavior is not exactly. Let me. Let me uh, who's? Uh, yeah, you. And is then this on? I hear yeah. you. Very quick. What possible situation could cure this this political polarization into a real third party, an organized third party? I'm again. I'm you know. Mitt Romney, by the way, used to, no matter what question he was asked when he was campaigning, he would say, that's a great question. But that's, that's also a very useful one. And, and now, you get my, um, now you get my rant. Uh, I'll keep it short. Because the, the hope of a third party up to now is kind of like the big bands are coming back, uh, the South will rise again, and jet travel is a fad. By which I mean there is always, always, 
Somebody goes out and takes a poll and says, well, look what, you know, 45% of Americans say they, 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 they want to see an alternative. And every four years or two years, a group shows up. I can't remember the one that's on now. Uh, there was a big deal four years ago. You know, we're going we're gonna to have a third party. And various politicians say, you know, kind of look at it like uh, um, Chuck Hagel, the former Nebraska senator, thought that would happen six or seven years ago. And maybe, maybe at some point it'll happen. Here's the problem. Um, let's, look at, let's look at Mike Bloomberg. In, in some ways, he would have been an ideal third party. Man in the middle, um, very good on the environment, very good on women's rights from a left point of view, but also very sympathetic to big business, was you know, the anti-populist. And Lord knows, had the resources to run a campaign. And I talked to him when this was brooded about the first time. And he said, look, I could spend half a billion dollars. No one ever said that to me before or since. And the, mo the most I could do was tie up the Electoral College, which would have given the election to the Republican, based on how that works. The problem is it sounds great until you actually start putting meat on the bones. And I'll, I'll give you, here's what I mean. Um, find a candidate in the middle John Kasich, maybe, you know, who's been brooding about it. John Kasich is uh, pro-life. So if you have any kind of a uh, concern for the issue of a woman's right to choose, that's going to be disabling for a, a fair number of people. We, you know, we, we, one of the things we've lost is a kind of coalition politics where you say, okay, this, this candidate is right on most of my stuff, but she's wrong on this, but yeah, that's okay. Ronald Reagan, no less, used to say 80% 80, 80 of something is better than 20% of nothing, something like that. So this is what, that's partly what happens with a third party. Um, the people fall away, and then there's always the calculation of, well, if we, if we vote for this third party candidate, it's going to elect one of the two. And we actually did see that in 2000, and we saw that this time. The elections were so close that voting for a third party, and neither of those third party choices were in my view, particularly prepossessing. But there's no doubt, if, if Ralph Nader were not on the Florida ballot, Al Gore would have won Florida by about 25,000 votes. You can do the math. And it's, if uh, um, the Jill Stein issue is a little more complicated, but it's close enough. So I used to think that the only way you would get a third party is if you took a defector from the Republicans and a defector from the Democrats with experience in politics and put them on the ticket together. Um, because it's not, um, it's, it's worth noting that the most successful third party candidate ever was Teddy Roosevelt, who had already been president. He, you know, he won California, uh, he won 88 electoral votes, I think he got something like 28% of the vote. And I do think, oddly enough, that the one, the one time for peculiar reasons that it conceivably could have worked, you go back to 1992, which is a far less divided time than now. And Ross Perot, um, whose seat back and trade table was clearly not in the full upright and locked position, <laughs> got 19% of the vote, right? One in five Americans wanted nuclear you know, power in the, in the hands of Ross Perot. So now if you substitute Ross Perot at that point with like a Michael Bloomberg type, 
But remember, you get 90% of the vote, no electoral votes. So it's a, it's a, it's a, low, it's a, it's a perennially <laughs> low-grade fever in American politics, and maybe someday we're going to see this happen. I'm sorry, you, use the mic because it's hopeless with me. Too many rock and roll shows. I rephrase. What over the 240 years has caused, on several occasions, existing large parties to disappear and new parties to come? We don't have wigs anymore. Yeah. Basically what's happened, uh, and it, it is traditionally by political scientists in, in happier times been celebrated. Basically what happens is when a movement arises, uh, it is absorbed. So you had, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, you had, the, you had two different strains of progressivism. You had the, 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 the populists and you had the, the more urbane kind of, of uh, progressives. And both parties toyed them. Teddy Roosevelt was a progressive. Woodrow Wilson was kind of a liberal. And ultimately they became Democrats. Um, George Wallace got 13% of the vote as a third party candidate in 1968, but essentially what happened was the Southern whites all migrated to the Republican Party. Uh, and the, the, the rock-ribbed Republican New Englanders, you know, that used to be the most Republican part of the country, now, you know, they vote Democratic. Because the parties were, were so uh, amorphous, and by the way, that goes back to your third party point, it is conceivable that if these two parties continue to, do, to, do, to define themselves ideologically, that conceivably down the road could open the road. Because didn't, it didn't occur to me in your first question, but this is an important point. If I, were, if I had a PowerPoint, which would probably blow out the entire California grid because I don't know how to use one, <laughs> I would draw you a Venn diagram. And the a Venn diagram from the 1970s, here's the Republicans in Congress, here's the Democrats. And there'd be a, a, a reasonable area of spillover, that is the more liberal Republicans would vote more liberal than the more conservative Democrats. The last Venn diagram I saw said this, the most conservative Democrat in the House is more liberal than the most liberal Republican in the House. They don't meet. Um, and people used to complain that the parties, you know, how can, how can you have a political party where you have, you know, uh, Hubert Humphrey, and James Eastland, uh, a Minnesota liberal and a white supremacist. Well, we don't have that really much anymore. And maybe if the parties can, you know, continue to develop that way, be homogenous, there might be room. You have a mic? Yes, I do have a mic. Okay. I'm Alex Medajian. Thank you so much. That was a terrific and well-informed talk. Um, everyone, most people at least, has touched upon this question, but we qu haven't quite drilled down on it, and that's what I really want to um, talk to you about. You've ta we've all talked about how this is a very, very old problem, how the, um, the degeneration of our democracy. And you also said that this is more than just getting more, quote unquote, counterbalancing forces elected. This is more than just getting more people to oppose Trump. This is a cultural thing. And so if we are really to get to the root of the problem, what do we have to do to essentially change the culture, change the mindset, change the trust? And then how do we do it, more importantly? And then third, and arguably most important of all, 
how do we sustain that change? Good question. No, I mean, I mean it. The, uh, it interested me that, there, that the, um, some of the major social media forces are, this is the first step, are trying to figure out how to stop the spread of phony news. Um, th there's a piece in the New York Times today but where Google is asking YouTube to help filter and put, put warning notices on stuff. In that regard, if you want to be a little more depressed, I did not mention this in the piece, but there is a, a well-known in the field technologist named Avid Ovadia who has quit his job to start warning big technology of what's coming, which is that the development of more and more sophisticated techniques makes it now possible to create fake news in a way that we have never had before. Um, it, you can, for instance, I, it's, it's online now. You can watch John Kennedy's speech in Dallas that he never gave because he was shot on the way to the trade war. But they've taken enough you know, images and put them together and found his voice. And now with the, the speech, they have the text. And his point is uh, that so many different uh, possibilities exist for, for instance, Creating a, a, creating a false video of you saying something that would go to your friends and they would assume it was you. And the shorthand reason I'm getting to this is his ultimate conclusion is that people are not going to believe anything. Once they really aren't sure whether what they're seeing is real or not, then, then, then we're really doomed. Because where's he? You know, people say, well, you've got to be informed. Informed how? About what? So... I think, and maybe this is going to turn out to be a, um, a blessing in disguise, maybe this last Facebook thing um, is going to somehow force these powerful institutions to fight back against the spread of these false reports. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to, you know, look, there's plenty of room in politics, always has been for dissembling, you know, I mean, let, let's not forget that the PolitiFact, the group that tries to weigh this, and then whenever they do, they're called, you know, fake. They gave the Lie of the Year Award in 2013 to Barack Obama for saying, if you like your doctor, you can keep him. Um, you know, Franklin Roosevelt knew damn well we were getting involved in, in that war in Europe, and spent, but he, he had to maneuver the country into it, and he just kept saying, oh, your boys are not going to be sent to fight any foreign wars. Um, but the only, thing, the only thing that I'm saying is that, I, that the institutions with the power to do something about it are going to have to step up. Uh, oh, I, over I, here, who's got the mic? Oh, I, I guess I had. I'd All right, I, I, just very quickly. I, I think uh, Oscar Wilde said that the only problem with socialism is that it takes too many evenings, and and I'm just wondering, like, what following up on Alex's question, what advice do you have for the students in the room? <laughs> what advice do you have for the students in the room uh, beyond uh, beyond voting? Like, what what can they? What should they be doing? Um, yeah, you know. Um, by the way, uh, George Orwell said the problem with capitalism is capitalism and the problem with socialism is socialists. <laughs> if you ever read The Road to Wigan Pier, he has a very uh, uh, scathing notion of what socialism is like. And it's very much like attacking radical chic. Anyway, sorry. 
He's, he's the hero of mine. Um, yeah, I'm remembering that there was a humorist in my time, Art Buckwald. He was a once famous columnist. He's kind of like John Oliver, but without the bite. But he used to give commencement speeches, and he would tell young people, we've given you a perfect world. Don't screw it up. This is not true. Um, but I, I do have to think this, that, that I am extremely encouraged, actually, by what I saw. I spent um, a couple of months uh, a year, a year or so ago at the University of Chicago. I was a fellow at David Axelrod's Institute of Politics. And I was absolutely blown away by the students there. Um, not just their brains, but their absolute commitment to being involved in the process. Um, I, I can, look, I, under, I remember even years ago, younger people were, were saying, I don't want to be part of the political process. But they weren't on the sidelines. They were doing local stuff. They were in literacy programs. They were working on you know, child care. They were involved, but they had just come to believe that um, the, the big stuff, you know, electing people to major office, was just all a fraud. And the only thing I can say is um, I think it's up to the, up to the teachers somehow to communicate to their students, this is big stuff. You know, you get the wrong president or the wrong leadership, and you will be going to you will be in you will be fighting in a war. There will not be a job when you when you come out. We've already seen the consequences of some of this. You know, all the graduate students who are baristas, um, and they're not all art history majors. You know, there's stuff, the communicating that this stuff matters beyond the way we sometimes cover it. You know, Showtime has a show called The Circus. Well, you know what? It's not a circus. I mean, I find politics infinitely amazing. And it is high drama, low farce, you know. I mean, every you know, there's there's Ben Carson saying he really didn't know, you know, he, he had to get a new table because it was dangerous the old table, and you go okay, but then you see what the consequence of of, of what happens, and all I can say is, um, you know, I don't know if it's if it's Sisyphusian, I don't know if the stone always rolls down the hill, but it's got to be a, a it's a constant battle to say uh, to say that this matters. Um, the, the biggest thing that I dislike about pop culture, which I mostly love, uh, is that it has made earnestness almost impossible to say with a straight face. It's the one thing that I think folks like Jon Stewart and, and Oliver, Oliver less so because he does serious stuff, they, 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 the, the, the idea is that they're all phony. They're all frauds. They're all hypocrites, and that's that's not right, you know. Look, I don't I don't have a you know a two point easy way to do it. I don't know how, what else to do about that except to try to kind of push back. Um, it's an inadequate answer, I know. So, um, what am I on? Yes, just okay. but um, do speak up because it's my hearing. This will be the last. This will be the last question, by the way. Okay. Uh, so but for a fee, never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. So there are, um, 
Um, I'd like to make a couple of observations. One is that I think that loss of trust by itself is really not a big deal. That um, uh, survey research in the 50s and 60s showed that the United States was distinctively trusting as in contrast to Western European advanced industrial societies. And uh, social scientists worried about that. And, and well, you know, what was wrong with the United States? But the Western European societies have done, done just fine. They haven't collapsed. They haven't fallen into dictatorship. I, I think trust is, um, in institutions, is overrated. And the notion that um, there's ample reason to mistrust is, a, uh, is correct that that's a, a correct position. I think that the, the problem that, one of the problems that we have to, there are two problems I think that we have to solve, and one of them has to do with the point that Mr. Firestone made about uh, acting as if you won't always be in office. And I think that can even be sharpened, that not, not only will you personally not be in office, but your party will not be the majority. And that that alters the way people govern. And one of the things that's characterization of our partisan split is that there are a great deal of very deeply value-laden sort of morality policies, divisions that are at the heart of this, of this separation. Abortion, guns, homosexuality, gender, all that, all that kind of stuff. These are things that are unlike traditional politics, pork barrel politics that are difficult to compromise. And they're, they're difficult to recognize the legitimacy of the opposition when you're in the majority and they're in the, in the minority. So I think that um, I, I do, th and I also want to echo the point you just made, which wasn't emphasized before, is uh, the presidency. One of the things that the Donald Trump presidency has made clear to everybody is that the president in this country is really powerful. And, and it is, it is definitely inappropriate for us to have institutions designed where we depend on the good personal qualities of a president instead of the separation of powers. Now, you made a lot of points, um, most of which I agree with, not the first one. I mean, I, you know, I think the U.S. might have been really well trusted in the 50s because they were feed in Europe, but I, I may be wrong about that. They were the only people on their feet. But, but, but yes, I, I mistrust in institutions is a useful corrective to being, to being over-trusted. Um, the issue about compromise is worth just spending a last minute, if I may. Um, one of the things that, um, I got a lot of problems with Bill Clinton, and frankly, he had a few problems with me, but I, you know, I think he cost the last two Democratic candidates the White House, but that's me. But one of the things he was really good at was finding a way to not increase the divisions. When he spoke about abortion, he said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And that was part of the Democratic Party platform for all. And in an earlier iteration, Hillary Clinton used to talk about the complicated, deeply troubling issues about abortion and how she had respect for people who disagreed with her. That's by 2012, that line on the Democratic platform was out because the, the, the NARAL group felt it, was, uh, it, it wasn't supportive enough. And in her last campaign, in the Democratic Party platform now on abortion, it's to your point, is here, and the Republican Party portion is here, and the country is kind of here.
The Democratic Party platform has no restriction on abortion, any time, any reason, and it should be federally funded. And the Republican Party platform is read literally, no abortions, even to save the life of a mother. Now, the candidates don't say that, and they kind of... So the idea that you could find some kind of common ground with at least, you know, Bill Clinton used to talk about, you know, the more we can do about family planning and sex education and adoption, the more we can reduce the number of abortions. And even on gun control, uh, there was an effort by Pat Toomey, the conservative Republican from Pennsylvania, and Joe Manchin, probably the most conservative Democrat in the Senate. Uh, this was after, I don't know how many massacres ago, to get some kind of, of bill through. I, you know, I still think that that kind of effort, um, I think that kind of effort is gonna, is gonna continue and it, it may have some success, but I, I think you are right, and it goes to the point that you were making about, about the California Republicans, that when you make politics Manichaean, when it is, you know, a battle between good and evil, instead of a battle between good ideas and bad ideas, you're gonna have a problem. And, and to some extent we're in this now, and I do think, you know, um, this is how I will end. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, suppose Donald Trump had come into office and first thing on the table was a big infrastructure bill. Now, let's get Americans back to work. Chuck, let's build that rail tunnel. Let's, let's, put, let's put people back to work. And maybe put his cell phone away or smartphone away for you know, a while and maybe turn off TV. Think of where he would be now politically with an economy that looks pretty good, we haven't been to war yet, may not ever. And it reminded me of a, something that a woman I knew said that her mom told her at the end of a very long and unhappy marriage. And she said, you know, we could have had a great life if only your father had been a completely different person. <laughs> and to some extent, that's what I think about Trump, that the, that the opening for this outsider with no ties to the establishment, an outsider who knew American history, who had a love of language, who had a certain sense of what my people call Rachmanus, uh, empathy, soul. I mean, my God, you know, that, he could have redefined that kind of outsider, you know, would have, I think would have, would have been the substitute for the third party. I'm going to be president in a way that nobody's been president before. I don't owe anything to anybody. So I'm not going to put nine Goldman Sachs people in my cabinet and, and administration. I'm not going to write a tax bill that makes the rich richer. You know, I'm going to try to figure out a genuine way to handle the DACA issue. And I'm going to do some conservative things because you know, I have these beliefs. You just have to imagine what that would be like. Uh, you know, it was always, always, I think, for me, uh, the lost hope of a Robert Kennedy that that somebody speaking with those instincts um, could have produced, I think, a very different kind of administration. But that's not where we are. But what we are is out of time. So thank you.